I read public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. That's the only books I can read without getting sued. So it limits my material uh, to people that wrote a really long time ago. And everyone who lived a really long time ago were racist or homophobic or sexist or anti-Semitic or xenophobic. Uh, Anything you can imagine, they were it. Because that's just the way people were back then. And they all wrote books. So if anything I read today is offensive or upsetting, uh, don't hold me responsible. My hands are tied. There's nothing else for me to read. You could always turn it into a drinking game or something. Well, what's going on? Uh, nothing. I just got back from uh, lunch with old co-workers, which was nice. I'm having a slow work day, and I thought, wouldn't it be fun to record a podcast nice and early so it's ready for Monday morning? So that's what I'm doing today as I read the short story Youth by Isaac Asimov. Uh, He was born in 1920 and died... The year I graduated high school, 1992. He was an American writer and professor of biochemistry at Boston University. His books have been published in nine out of the ten major categories of the Dewey Decimal System, which I'm sure he bragged about all the time. He was that kind of little man. Uh, He is ranked up there with Robert Heilein and Arthur C. Clarke as a member of the Big Three that wrote hard science fiction back in the day. So, sit back and enjoy as I read Youth by Isaac Asimov. And so we begin Youth by Isaac Asimov. Red and Slim found the two strange little animals the morning after they heard the thunder sounds. They knew that they could never show their new pets to their parents. That was all in bold text, and that's all by itself. Now I guess the story starts. There was a spatter of pebbles against the window, and the younger stirred in his sleep. Another and he was awake. He sat up stiffly in bed. Seconds passed while he interpreted his strange surroundings. He wasn't in his own home, of course. This was out in the country. It was colder than it should be, and there was green at the window. Slam! The call was a hoarse, urgent whisper, and the younger bounded to the open window. Slim? It wasn't his real name. But the new friend he had met the day before had needed only one look at his slight figure to say, You're slim, and added, I'm Red. Red wasn't his real name either, but its appropriateness was obvious. Uh, Okay, they were friends instantly with the quick, unquestioning friendship of young ones not yet quite in adolescence, before even the first stains of adulthood began to make their appearance. Slim cried, Hi, Red, and waved cheerfully, still blinking the sleep out of himself. Red 
kept to his croaking whisper. Quiet. You want to wake somebody? Slim noticed all at once that the sun scarcely topped the low hills in the east and the shadows were long and soft. And the grass was wet. Slim said more softly, "Eh, What's the matter? Red only waved for him to come out. Slim dressed quickly, gladly confining his morning wash to the momentary sprinkle of a little lukewarm water. He let the air dry as the exposed portions of his body as he ran out, while bare skin grew wet against the dewy grass. Red said, eh, you, you gotta be quiet. If Mom wakes up, or Dad, or your dad, or even in the hands, then it'll be, come on in, or you'll catch your death of cold. He mimicked voice and tone faithfully, so that Slim laughed and thought that there had never been so funny a fellow as Red. Slim said eagerly, Do you come out here every day like this, Red? Real early? It's like the whole world is just yours, isn't it, Red? No one else around and all like that? He felt proud at being allowed entrance into this private world. Red stared at him sidelong and said carelessly, Eh... I've been up for hours. Didn't you hear it last night? Hear what? Thunder. There was a thunderstorm? Slim never slept through a thunderstorm. I guess not. But there was thunder. I heard it. And then I went to the window and it wasn't raining. It was all stars and the sky was just getting uh, sort of almost gray. You know what I mean? Slim had never uh, seen it so, but he nodded. So I just thought I'd go out, said Red. They walked along the grassy side of the concrete road that split the panorama right down the middle all the way down to where it vanished among the hills. It was so old that Red's father couldn't tell Red when it had been built. It didn't have a crack or a rough spot on it. Red said, Can you keep a secret? Sure, Red, what kind of secret? Uh, just a secret. Maybe I'll tell you, maybe I won't. I don't know yet. Red broke a long, supple stem from a fern they passed, methodically stripped it of its leaflets, and swung what was left whip-fashion. For a moment, he was on a wild charger, which reared and champed under his iron control. Then he got tired, tossed the whip aside, and stowed the charger away in the corner of his imagination for future use. He said, uh, there'll be a circus around. Slim said, that's no secret. I knew that. My dad told me even before we came here. That's not the secret. Fine secret. Ever see a circus? Oh, sure, you bet. You like it? Say, there isn't anything I like better. <laughs> Red was watching out of the corner of his eyes again. Ever think you uh, would like to be with a circus? I mean, for good? Slim considered. Hmm. I guess not. I think I'd be an astronomer like my dad. I think he wants me to be. Huh? Astronomer, said Red. Slim felt the doors of his new private world closing on him, and astronomy became a thing of dead stars and black empty space. He said placatingly, A circus would be more fun. Ah, you're just saying that. No, I'm not, I mean it. Red grew argumentative. Suppose you had a chance to join the circus right now, what would you do? I... I see, Red affected, scornful laughter. Slim was stung. I'd join up. Go on, try me. Red whirled at him, strange and intense. You mean that? You want to go in with me? What do you mean? Slim stepped back a bit, surprised by the unexpected challenge. I got something that can get us into the circus. Maybe someday we can even have a circus of our own. 
We could be the biggest circus fellows in the world. That's if you want to go in with me. Otherwise, well, I guess I could do it on my own. I just thought, let's give good old Slim a chance. The world was strange and glamorous. And Slim said, sure thing, Red, I'm in. What was it, huh, Red? Tell me what it was. Sorry, drinking coffee. Figure it out. What's the most important thing in circuses? Slim thought desperately. He wanted to give the right answer. Finally, he said, uh, Acrobats? Holy smokes, I wouldn't go five steps to look at acrobats. I don't know, then. Animals, that's what. What's the biggest sideshow? Where are the biggest crowds? Even in the main rings, the best acts are animal acts. There was no doubt in Red's voice. Did you think so? Everyone thinks so. You ask anyone. Anyway, I found animals this morning. Two of them. And you got them? Yeah, sure. That's a secret. Are you telling? Oh, of course not. Okay. I've got them at the barn. Do you want to see them? They were almost at the barn. It's huge, open black door. Too black. They had been heading there all this time. Slim stopped in his tracks. They tried to make the words casual. Are they big? Would I fool them if they were big? They can't hurt you. They're only about so long. I got them in a cage. They were in the barn now, and Slim saw the large cage suspended from a hook on the roof. It was covered with stiff canvas. Red said, We used to have some bird here or something. Anyway, they can't get away from there. Come on, let's go up to the loft. They clambered up the wooden stairs, and Red hooked the cage toward him. Slim pointed and said, There's sort of a hole in the canvas. Red frowned. How did I get there? He lifted the canvas and looked in and said with relief, Ah, they're still there. The canvas appeared to be burned, worried Slim. You want to look, or don't you? Slim nodded slowly. He wasn't sure he wanted to, after all. They might be. But the canvas had been jerked off, and there they were. Two of them. The way Red said, they were small and sort of disgusting looking. The animals moved quickly as the canvas lifted and were on the side toward the youngsters. Red poked a cautious finger at them. Eh, watch out, said Slim in agony. Uh, they don't hurt you, said Red. Ever see anything like them? No. Can't you see how a circus would jump at a chance to have these? Maybe they're too small for a circus. Red looked annoyed. He let go of the cage, which swung back and forth, pendulum fashion. You're just trying to back out, aren't you? No, I'm not. It's just, they're not too small. Don't worry. Right now, I've only got one worry. Uh, what's that? Well, I gotta keep them till the circus comes, don't I? And I gotta figure out what to feed them meanwhile. The cage swung, and the little trapped creatures clung to its bars, gesturing at the youngsters with queer, quick motions, almost as though they were intelligent. Part 2 The astronomer entered the dining room with decorum. He felt very much the guest. He said, Where are the youngsters? My son isn't in his room. The industrialist smiled. Uh, they've been out for hours. However, breakfast was forced into them among the women uh, some time ago, so there's nothing to worry about. Youth, doctor, youth! Exclamation point. Youth! Exclamation point. The word seemed to depress the astronomer. They ate breakfast in silence. The industrialist said once, You really think they'll come? The day looks so normal. The astronomer said they'll come. And that was all. Afterward, the industrialist said, 
Yeah, pardon me, I can't conceive you're playing so elaborate a hoax. You really spoke to them? As I speak to you. At least in a sense, they can project thoughts. I gather that must be so from your letter. How, I wonder? Oh, I could not say. I asked them, and of course they were vague, or perhaps it was just that I could not understand it. It involves a projector for the focusing of thought, and even more than that, the conscious attention on the part of both projector and receptor. It was quite a while before I realized we were trying to think at me. Such thought projectors may be part of the science that they will give us. Perhaps, said the industrialist, yet think of the changes it would bring to society. A thought projector. Well, why not? Change would be good for us. I don't think so. It is only in the old age that change is unwelcome, said the astronomer, and races can be old as well as individuals. The industrialist pointed out the window. You see that road? It was built before the wars, which is all one word. Before the wars. I don't know exactly when, but it was good now as the day was built. We couldn't possibly duplicate it now. The race was young when that was built, eh? Then, yes, exclamation point. At least they weren't afraid of new things. Oh, no, I wish they had been. Where is the society of before the wars? Destroyed. Doctor, what good were youth and new things? We're better off now. The world is peaceful and jogs along. The race goes nowhere, but after all, there is nowhere to go. They prove that. The men who built the road. I will speak with your visitors, as I agreed, if they come. But I think I will only ask them uh, to go. The race is not going anywhere, said the astronomer, earnestly. It is going toward the final destruction. My university has a smaller student body each year. Fewer books are written, less work is done. An old man sleeps in the sun, and his days are peaceful and unchanging. But each day finds him near death all the same. Well, well, said the industrialist. No, don't dismiss it. Listen, before I wrote you, I investigated your position in the uh, planetary economy. And were you? You found me solvent, interrupted the industrialist, smiling. Oh, I, yes. Oh, I see. Oh, you're joking. And yet, perhaps the joke is not far off. You are less solvent than your father, and he was less solvent than his father. Perhaps your son will no longer be solvent. It becomes too troublesome for the planet to support even the industries that still exist, though they are toothpicks to the old oak trees of the before the wars. We will be back to village economy, and then uh, to what? The caves? <laughs> and the infusion of fresh technological knowledge will be the changing of all that. Not just the new knowledge, rather the whole effect of change, uh, of a broadening of horizons. Look, sir... I chose you to approach in this matter not only because you were rich and influential with government officials, but because you had a, uh, an unusual reputation uh, for these days of daring to break with tradition. Our people will resist change, and you would know how to handle them. How to see to it that, uh, that, that the youth of the race is revived? Yes. With its atomic bombs? The atomic bombs, returned the astronomer, need not be the end of civilization. These visitors of mine had their atomic bomb, or whatever their equivalent was in their own worlds, and survived it, because they didn't give up. Don't you see? It wasn't the bomb that defeated us, but our own shell shock. This may be the last chance to reverse the process. Tell me, said the industrialist, what do these friends from Space One return? The astronomer hesitated. 
He said, I, I'll be truthful with you. They come from a denser planet. Ours is richer, the, the lighter atoms. They want magnesium? Hmm? Aluminum? No, sir. Carbon and hydrogen. They want coal and oil. Really? The astronomer said quickly, You are going to ask why creatures who have mastered space travel and therefore atomic power would want coal and oil? I can't answer that. The industrialist smiled. Ah, but I can. This is the best evidence yet of the truth of your story. Superficially, atomic power would seem to preclude the use of coal and oil. However, quite apart from the energy gained by their combustion, they remain, and always will remain, the basic raw material for all organic chemistry. Plastics, uh, dyes, pharmaceuticals, solvents. Industry could not exist without them, even in an atomic age. Still... If coal and oil are the low price for which they would sell us the troubles and tortures of racial youth, my answer is that the commodity would be dear if offered gratis. The astronomer sighed and said, There are the boys! Exclamation point. They were visible through the open windows, standing together in the grassy field and lost in animated conversation. The industrialist's son pointed imperiously, and the astronomer's son nodded and made off at a run toward the house. The industrialist said, There is the youth you speak of. Our race has as much of it as it ever had. Yes, but we age them quickly and pour them into the mold. Slim scuttled into the room, the door banged behind him. The astronomer said in mild disapproval, eh, what's this? Slim looked up in surprise and came to a halt. Eh, I beg your pardon. I didn't know anyone was here. I'm sorry to have interrupted. His enunciation was almost painfully precise. The industrialist said, it's all right, youngster. But the astronomer said, even if you had been entering an empty room, son, there should be no cause for slamming a door. Nonsense, insisted the industrialist. The youngster has done no harm. You simply scold him for being young. You, with your views. He said to Slim, come here, lad. Slim advanced slowly. How do you like the country, eh? Very, very much, sir, thank you. My son has been showing you about the place, has he? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, red, I mean. No, no, call him Red. I call him that myself. Now tell me, what are you two up to, eh? Slim looked away. Why, just exploring, sir. The industrialist turned to the astronomer. There you are, youthful curiosity and adventure lust. The race has not yet lost it. Slim said, sir. Yes, lad. The youngster took a long time in getting on with it. He said, Red sent me in for something good to eat, but I don't exactly know what he meant. I didn't like to say so. Why, just ask the cook. She'll have something good for you youngins to eat. Oh, no, sir, I mean for animals. For animals? Yes, sir. What do animals eat? The astronomer said, I'm afraid my son is city-bred. Well, said the industrialist, there's no harm in that. What kind of animal, lad? A small one, sir. Then try a, you know, a grass or leaves. And if they don't like that, nuts or berries would probably do the trick. Thank you, sir. Slim ran out again closing the door gently behind him. The astronomer said, eh, do you suppose they've trapped an animal alive? He was obviously perturbed. That's common enough. There's no shooting on my estate in its tame country. Full of rodents and small creatures. Red is always coming home with pets of one sort or another. They rarely maintain his interest for long. 
He looked at the wall clock. Your friends should have been here by now, shouldn't they? Part three. The swaying had come to a halt, and it was dark. The explorer was not comfortable in the alien air. It felt as thick as soup, and he had to breathe shallowly, even so. He reached out in a sudden need for company. The merchant was warm to the touch. His breathing was rough. He moved in an occasional spasm and was obviously asleep. The explorer hesitated and decided not to wake him. It would serve no real purpose. There would be no rescue, of course. That was the penalty paid for high profits, which unrestrained competition could lead to. The merchant, who opened a new planet, could have a ten-year monopoly of its trade, which he might hug to himself or, more likely, rent out to all comers at a stiff price. If followed, the planets were searched for in secrecy and preferably away from the usual trade routes. In a case such as theirs, then, there was little or no chance that another ship would come within range of their subarithics, suber, subetherics. There you go, except for the most improbable of coincidences. Even if they were in their ship, that is, rather than in this, this cage. The explorer grasped at the thick bars. Even if they blasted those away as they could, they'd be stuck too high uh, up in the open air for leaping. It is too bad. They had landed twice before in the scout ship. They had established contact with natives who were grotesquely huge, but mild and unaggressive. It was obvious that they had once owned a flourishing technology, but hadn't faced up to the consequences of such a technology. It would have been a wonderful market. And it was a tremendous world. The merchant, especially, had been taken aback. He had known the figures that expressed the planet's diameter, but from a distance of two light seconds... He had stood at the visiplate and muttered, Unbelievable. Though there were larger worlds, the explorer said, it wouldn't do for an explorer to be too easily impressed. Inhabited? Well, no. Why, you could drop your planet under the large ocean and drown it. The explorer smiled. Eh, it was a gentle dig at his Arcturian homeland, which is smaller than most planets, he said. Eh, not quite. The merchant followed along the line of his thoughts. And the inhabitants are large in proportion to their world. He sounded as though the news struck him less favorably now. Nearly ten times our height. Are you sure that they're friendly? That's hard to say. Friendship between alien intelligences is, a, is an imponderable. They are not dangerous, I think. We've come across other groups that could not maintain equilibrium after the atomic war stage. And you know the results. Introversion. Retreat, gradual decadence, and increasing gentleness. Even if they are such monsters, the principle remains. It was about then that the explorer felt the heavy throbbing of the engines. He frowned and said, We are descending a bit too quickly. There had been some speculation on the dangers of landing some hours before. The planetary target was a huge one for an oxygen-water world, though it lacked the size of the uninhabitable hydrogen-ammonia planets and its low density made its surface gravity fairly normal. Its gravitational forces fell off, but slowly with distance. In short, its gravitational potential was high, and the ship's calculator was a run-of-the-mill model, not designed to plot landing trajectories of that potential range. <sighs> that meant the pilot would have to use manual controls. It would have been wiser eh, to install a more high-powered model, eh, but 
they would have made a trip to some outpost of civilization. Lost time. Perhaps a lost secret. The merchant demanded an immediate landing. The merchant felt it was necessary to defend the position now. He said angrily to the explorer, to the explorer, Don't you think the pilot knows his job? He landed you safely twice before. Yes, thought the explorer, in a scout ship. Not in this unmaneuverable freighter aloud, he said nothing. He kept his eye on the Vizzy plate. They were descending too quickly. There was no room for doubt, much too quickly. The merchant said peevishly, Why do you keep silence? Well, then, if you wish to speak to me, I would suggest that you strap on your floater and help me prepare the ejector. The pilot fought a noble fight. He was no beginner. The atmosphere, abnormally high and thick in the gravitational potential of this world, whipped and burned about the ship. But to the very last, it looked as though it might bring it under control despite that. He even maintained course, following an extra, extra, extrapolated, ugh, extrapolated, 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 there I said it, <laughs> line to the point on the northern continent toward which they were headed. Under other circumstances, with a shade more luck, the story would eventually have been told and retold as heroic and masterly reversal of a lost situation. But within sight of victory, tired body and tired nerves clamped a control bar with a shade too much pressure. The ship, which had almost leveled off, dipped down again. There was no room to retrieve the final error. There was only a mile left to fall. The pilot remained at his post to the actual landing. His only thought of the breaking of the force of the crash of maintaining the space-worthiness of the vessel. He did not survive. With the ship buckling madly in a soupy atmosphere, few ejectors could be mobilized and only one of them in time. When, afterwards, the explorer lifted out of the unconsciousness and rose to his feet, he had the definite feeling that but for himself and the merchant, there were no survivors. And perhaps that he, uh, that was an overcalculation. His floater had burnt out while still sufficiently distant from the surface to have uh, the fall stunning. The merchant might have had less luck even than that. He was surrounded by a world of thick, ropey stalks of grass, and in the distance were trees that reminded him vaguely of similar structures on his native Arcturian world, except that their lowest branches were high above what he could consider a normal treetops. He called, his voice sounding basso in the thick air, and the merchant answered. The explorer made his way toward him, thrusting violently at the coarse stalks that barred his path. Uh, are you hurt? he asked. The merchant grimaced. Uh, sprain something, it hurts to walk. The explorer probed gently. I don't have anything broken. You'll have to walk despite the pain. Can we rest first? Uh, it's important to try and find the ship. If it's space-worthy or if it can be repaired, uh, we may live. Otherwise, we won't. Just a few minutes, let me catch my breath. The explorer was glad enough for those few minutes. The merchant's eyes were already closed. He allowed his to do the same. He heard the trampling and his eyes snapped open. Never sleep on a strange planet, he told himself futilely. The merchant was awake too, and his steady screaming was a rumble of terror. The explorer called, It's only a native of this planet, it won't harm you. 
But even as he spoke, the giant had swooped down, and in a moment they were in the grasp, being lifted closer to its monstrous ugliness. The merchant struggled violently and, of course, quite futilely. Can't you talk to it? He yelled. The explorer could only shake his head. I can't reach it with the projector. It won't be listening. Then blast it. Blast it down. We can't do that. The phrase, you fool, had almost been added. The explorer struggled to keep his self-control. They were swallowing space as the monster moved purposely away. Uh, Why not, cried the merchant. You can reach for your blaster. I see it in plain sight. Don't be afraid of falling. It's simpler than that. If this monster is killed, you'll never trade with this planet. You'll even have to leave it. You probably won't live the day out. Why? Why? Because this is one of the young of the species. You should know that happens when a traitor kills a native young, even accidentally. What's more, if this is the target point, then we are on the estate of a powerful native. This might be one of his brood. That was how they entered their present prison. They had carefully burnt away a portion of the thick, stiff covering, and it was obvious that from the height in which they were suspended was a killing one. Now, once again, the prison cage shuddered and lifted an upward arc. The merchant rolled to the lower rim and startled awake. The cover lifted and light flooded in. As was the case the time before, there were two specimens of the young. They were not very different in appearance from adults of the species. Reflected the explorer, though, of course, they were considerably smaller. A handful of reedy green stalks was stuffed between the bars. Its odor was not unpleasant but it carried clods of soil at its ends. The merchant drew away and said huskily, "Uh, What are they doing? The explorer said, Trying to feed us, I should judge. At least this seems to be the native equivalent of grass. The cover was replaced. They were set swinging again, alone with their father. Slim started at the sound of footsteps and brightened when it turned out to be only red. He said, no one's around. I had my eye peeled. You bet. Red said, shh, look, you take this stuff and stick it in the cage. I got a scoop back to the house. What is it? Slim reached reluctantly. Ground meat. Holy smokes, haven't you ever seen ground meat? That's what you should have got when I sent you back to the house instead of coming back with that stupid grass. Slim was hurt. How'd I know? That they don't eat grass. Besides, ground meat doesn't come loose like that. It comes in cellophane and isn't that color. Sure, in the city, out here we grind our own and it always looks as color till it's cooked. You mean it isn't cooked? Slim drew away quickly. Red looked disgusted. Do you think animals eat cooked food? Come on, take it. It won't hurt you. I'll tell you that there isn't much time. Why? What's doing back at the house? I don't know. Dad and your father are walking around. I think maybe they're looking for me. Maybe the cook told them I took the meat. Anyway, we don't want them coming here after me. Uh, Didn't you ask the cook before you took the stuff? Who, that crab? I should wonder if she only let me have a drink of water because Dad makes her. Come on, take it. Slim took the large glob of meat through his skin and crawled at the touch. He turned toward the barn and Red sped away in the direction from which he had come. He slowed when he approached the two adults, took a few deep breaths to bring himself back to normal, and then carefully and nonchalantly sauntered past. They were walking in the general direction of the barn, he noticed, but not dead on. He said, Hi, Dad. Hello, sir. 
The industrialist said, In just a moment, Red, I have a question to ask you. Red turned carefully blank face to his father. Yes, Dad? Mother tells me you were out early this morning. Uh, not real early, Dad. Just a little before breakfast. She said that you told her it was because you had been awakened during the night and didn't go back to sleep. Red waited before answering. Should he have told Mom that? Then he said, Yes, sir. What was it that awakened you? Red said, No harm in it. He said, I don't know, Dad. It sounded like thunder, sort of. Like a collision, sort of. Could you tell where it came from? It sounded like it was out by the hill. That was truthful and useful as well, since the direction was almost opposite in which the barn lay. The industrialist looked at his guest. I suppose it would do no harm to walk toward the hill. The astronomer said, I'm ready. Red watched them and walk away, and when he turned, he saw Slim peering cautiously out from among the briars of the hedge. Way, Red waved at him. Come on. Slim stepped out and approached. Did they say anything about the meat? No, I guess they don't know about that. They went down the hill. What for? Search me. They kept asking me about the noise I heard. Listen, did the animals eat the meat? Well, said Slim cautiously. They were sort of looking at it and smelling it or something. Okay, said Red. I guess they'll eat it. Holy smokes, we've got to eat something. Let's walk along toward the hill and see what Dad and your father are going to do. Uh, what about the animals? Ah, they'll be all right. A fellow can't spend all his time on them. Did you give them the water? Eh, sure, they drank that. See? Come on. We'll look at them after lunch. I'll tell you what, we'll bring them fruit. Anything will eat fruit. Together, they trotted up the rise. Red, as usual, in the lead. Part 5. The astronomer said, You think the noise was their ship landing? Don't you think it could be? If it were, they may all be dead. Perhaps not, said the industrialist, frowning. If they had landed, they're still alive. Where are they? Think about that for a while. He was still frowning. The astronomer said, I don't understand you. They may not be friendly. Oh, no, I've spoken with them. They've... They've spoken with them. Call that reconnaissance. What would their next step be? Invasion? But they only have one ship, sir. You know that only because they say so. They might have a fleet. I told you about their size. They, their size would not matter if they have hand weapons. That's one word. That may well be superior to our artillery. That is not what I meant. I had this partially in mind from the first, the industrialist went on. It's for that reason I agreed to see them after I received your letter. Not to agree to an unsettling and impossible trade, but to judge their real purposes. I did not count on their evading the meeting. He sighed. I suppose it isn't our fault. You are right in one thing. At any rate, the world has been at peace too long. We are losing a healthy sense of suspicion. The astronomer's mild voice rose to an unusual pitch, and he said, I will speak. I will tell you that there is no reason to suppose that they could possibly be hostile. They are small, yes, but that is only important because it is a reflection of the fact that their native worlds are small. Our world has what it is for them a normal gravity, but because of our much higher gravitational potential, our atmosphere is too dense to support them comfortably over sustained periods. <sighs> For a similar reason, the use of the world as a base for interstellar travel, except for trade in certain items, is uneconomical. There are important differences in chemistry of lift, 
due to the basic differences in soils. They couldn't eat our food or we theirs. Surely this can all be overcome. They can bring their own food, build doomed stations of lowered air pressure, devise specially designed ships. They can, and how glibly you can describe feats that are easy to erase in this youth. It is simply that they don't have to do any of that. There are millions of worlds suitable for them in the galaxy. They don't need this one, which isn't. How do you know? All this is their uh, information again. This I was able to check independently. I'm an astronomer, after all. That is true. <laughs> Let me hear what you have to say, then, while we walk. Then, sir, consider that for a long time our astronomers have believed that two general classes of planetary bodies existed. First, the planets, which formed at distances far enough from their stellar nucleus to become cool enough to capture hydrogen. These would be large planets rich in hydrogen, ammonia, methane. We have examples of these in giant outer planets. The second class would include those planets formed so near the stellar center that the high temperature would make it impossible to capture much hydrogen. These would be smaller planets. Oh, my lord. Comparatively poorer hydrogen and are richer in oxygen. We know that type very well since we live on one. Ours is the only solar system we know in detail. However, it has been reasonable for us to assume that these were the only two planetary classes. Ugh. I take it then that there's another. Oh, God. Yes, there's a super-dense class, still smaller proportional hydrogen than the inner planets of the solar system, the ratio of occurrence of the hydrogen-ammonia planets, and these super-dense water-oxygen worlds of their over the entire galaxy. And remember that they have actually conducted a survey of significant sample volumes of the galaxy, which we, without interstellar travel, cannot do. It is about three to one. This leaves them seven million super-dense worlds for exploration and colonization. <sighs> The industrialist looked at the blue sky and the green-covered trees among which they were making their way. He said, And worlds like ours? Ugh. The astronomer said softly, Ours is the first solar system to have found which contains them. Apparently, the development of our solar system was unique and did not follow the ordinary rules. The industrialist considered that. What it amounts to is that these creatures from space are asteroid dwellers. Oh, no, no. The asteroids are something else again. They occur, I was told, in one out of eight stellar systems, but they're completely different from what we've been discussing. And how does your being an astronomer change the fact that you are still only quoting their unsupported statements? But they did not restrict themselves to bald items of information. They presented me with a theory of stellar evolution, which I had yet to accept, and which is more nearly valid than anything our own astronomy has ever been able to devise. If we expect possible lost theories dating from before the wars, mind you, their theory had a rigidity, mathematical development, and it predicted just such a galaxy as they described. So you see, they have all the worlds they wish. They're not land-hungry, certainly not for our land. Reason would say so. If what you say is true, but creatures may be intelligent and not reasonable. Our forefathers were presumably intelligent, yet they were certainly not reasonable. Was it reasonable to destroy almost all their tremendous civilization in atomic warfare over the causes of historians can no longer accurately determine? <sighs> the industrialists brooded over it from the dropping of the first atom bomb over those islands. I forget the uh, ancient name. There was only one end in sight, and in plain sight. 
yet events were allowed to proceed to that end. He looked up, said briskly, well, where are we? I wonder if we are not on a fool's errand after all. But the astronomer was a little in advance, and his voice came thickly. No fool's errand, sir. Look there. Well, that turned out to be a lot longer than I expected, so we're going to split this one up into two parts. So, I will read part two next week, where we can find out what's going to happen to the adorable little humans in a cage, while these aliens are going to send them to a circus, and the parents plan to do business with them. Exciting stuff, which you can tune in for next week, here on Leaves of Glenn.